Hi everyone, welcome to episode 35. Come on in. You look great today. I like what you've done with your hair. Oh, you haven't washed it in a week? That's okay. That's what I, it looks so amazing all the ways that you have it. And here I was behind this green screen over here getting flattered and I looked and you were like staring at your microphone. I was like, oh, she's not talking to me. Yeah. I don't know who I was kidding. Talking to all of our friends. But you, you look great too, Katie. It's the first time I've seen you in person doing this for a little while, which is really nice. Quite a while, actually. Yeah. Get to see you with my eyeballs, like in person, mm-hmm. from across the room. I wore my sarcasm just for you. Oh, yes. <laughs> Katie's just been cozying in her sarcasm jacket over there while we've been getting hooked up. She's like, I'm just going to simmer away like a little bubbling pot of sarcasm stew. I was going to say oatmeal, but yeah, sarcasm stew works too. What are you drinking tonight, Katie? Or are you doing anything over there? H2O. Okay. It's an off week. Good, good. We all take them. Yep, that's good. I have not taken it off, <laughs> off <laughs> night at all. But I'm so excited to be here with everybody on episode 35, where we're going to talk about fun things, all just hang out like a bunch of friends and a little pile of pillows and snacks. <laughs> You are high. <laughs> All right. Could you imagine soberly hanging out with people you've never met in, in a pile of pillows with snacks? When we do it like this, it's we're all like together but separate. So I'd understand. Great. I'd try it the other way too, but you know, that's just me and my untamed spirit. <laughs> and we like that and appreciate that about you, Katie. Thank you. So what do you say now that we're in person? We get our hands out. Shit. Get ready to do. Of course, you choose this the week I have to like hold the microphone. (laughs) Okay. Oh shoot! Yeah, you can just put it down if you need to. Yeah, I'm gonna put it down. Bottle, leaf, grinder, shoot. Oh, all right. You vanquished my leaf. Ah, damn. I'm ready. You actually look like it. You have your glasses on. You're ready and everything. Okay, I believe you. (laughs) I'm taking notes. (laughs) My glasses on so I can see my notes. All the times I made fun of everyone in this family for having glasses. I'm like, haha, nerds. Well, I can't see shit at work now. So that (laughs) is called karma. So I was like, well, ain't that just a bitch. (laughs) So anyway, moving away from my blindness and into on June 1st, 1938, Superman. Oh, did he fly to to the comic section of a newspaper? Wrong. So he would first (laughs) appear in Action Comics. Oh, yeah. He would be in a comic book first. (laughs) (laughs) I do know that. I do know that's what would happen. Okay. All right. Who was he written by, since ye of all-knowing? I am not all-knowing on that front. Jerry, I believe his name is pronounced Siegel. Siegel? Nope. Yeah, Siegel, I think. Siegel? Cool, cool, cool. And Joe Schuster or Schuster? Schuster, I think. Schuster. That's what I figured. Being one of maybe, like, the best-known stories in comic history, perhaps non-comic history, Mm -hmm. just in general history, I would say, I don't think there's, I mean, I would be shocked if someone told me they didn't know who Superman was. I feel like that's a fair statement. He's global. Mm -hmm. Anyway, tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, Beauty and the Beast, Krypton, a doomed planet, (laughs) has two scientists that place their infant son on a ship. Bound for Earth, he's found by Martha and Jonathan Kent, a couple in small-town America. They name the boy Clark and care for him as their own. 
During this time, he exhibits superhuman powers that would later become the hallmarks and make him the Man of Steel. I put that in quotes because it's important. His dual identity is what leads the ongoing tension throughout the series as Superman works to save the world. Sound familiar? It does. Okay, good. Then we're on the right track. The success of Action Comics number one spurred the creation of the new superhero industry. So it began here Uh, on this day. mm. Not this particular day, but on the day of June 1st of 1938. Here's where it all began. All right, this Everything. Month. This is like the nerddom in all of its... When did the Great Depression end? Oh, yeah. So he was a child of the Great Depression, essentially, of Krypton and America. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, very symbolic. Very much so, actually. Especially since... What does the symbol on his chest mean? What, the S on his chest? Yeah. It's not super? I thought it meant hope. In Krypton, it was like a thing. No? I I don't know. I've not read. Girl, it's in Man of Steel. (sighs) I didn't. Whoa. You mean to tell me you didn't watch it? No, I've watched it. Oh. I've watched it. I just don't remember it. Well, you should, because they put a very nice sculpted butt in spandex. Is there any other reason to watch it? I mean, Henry Cavill is the handsomest for macaroni. I almost said Spider-Man's for Superman's. <laughs> Wrong hero. For all the mans. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's just, just all the men. He's just fine. He yes. Is. He's a great Superman. I will yeah. just take a second to applaud him. You're amazing. He really is. You know how, well, at least for me, I feel that uh, Chris Evans oh. is Captain America and Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man. And? and oh, and definitely Ryan Reynolds is... And? For sure. Oh, and Hugh Jackman is Wolverine. Okay, and? You're missing one very important blonde person. Oh, and Thor is, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anywho. But yes, he is Superman. He just, yeah, is. He's great. Seemingly overnight, a whole host of comic book publishers sprang up. Starting with Superman. Like little daisies. Oh, like just within a short period of time. They're popping up like daisies. (laughs) Within a short period of time, everyone's just like, yep, we're going to do comics like instantaneously. that was the bandwagon. Wow. Right there. Mm -hmm. Siegel and Schuster received $130 from DC Comics for exclusive rights to Superman. Oh. $130. Oh, yes. The pair and later their estates would spend years in court trying to recoup the royalties. DC, I'm looking at you. They're also not very polite about it as well. They're like, yeah, well, they sold it for what they sold it for. Listen, assholes, it's not like you're hurting for money. Wow. Not that they'll ever hear this, but, you know, I'll spot (laughs) off about it. DC Comics told Siegel in 1938 they had little to gain monetarily from the syndication of this material. Following up with, bear in mind, we can replace you at any time. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Shortly after that, Siegel and Schuster were fired in 1947, so that's about 10 years later. Before all of this, however, DC wasted no time in exploiting the character along with Siegel and Schuster, producing a newspaper strip, there you go, Laurel, that was so successful, Man of Steel was awarded its own comic title in 1939. A radio show soon followed, after in the 1940s, not to mention... Toys, puzzles, novels, coloring books, even bubblegum. Oh, hell yeah. 
I bet that lost its flavor so fast. Probably. Well, in the 40s? Oh, my God. Can it, Did it like even fruit. have flavor in the 40s? <laughs> I feel like they just ate, like, listen, if you were born in the 40s, bless you. But, like, also, I feel like they just ate, like, flavorless brand cereal in the morning. We're like, this is great. Healthiest bowel movements ever, but a terrible, terrible taste. <laughs> Meanwhile, fast forward to the 90s, and we were like, red dye 40 and other carcinogens. And we're like, yeah, you bleach everything out of that <laughs> that corn, stuff it back full of iron and vitamins, fortify that bitch, slap sugar on that, and feed it to America. <laughs> That's what we lived tell on. Tell us how you really feel, Katie. <laughs> I mean... But you're. I would I mean, tell you right. the '90s was a magical era. <laughs> I just know, like, Kraft macaroni and cheese was literally banned in Europe because it had like such like harmful chemicals in it. Did you know that? That like red forty dye. That shit was probably. I, we probably have X Men out there right now because of Kraft macaroni and cheese in the '90s. Incidentally, it's all made with turmeric now, and it's pretty much one of the most balanced diets you could have and eat it on a (laughs) weekly basis so it's fine now but like if you have a box like circa 2005 and back throw that shit out or sell it on ebay (laughs) but don't eat it we're really good at giving nutrition advice we're not doctors right (laughs) i'm not but i know seriously that shit's got like cancer in it so don't eat it yeah if you have a box from the 90s also why do you have a box from the 90s why didn't you eat it probably should have just thrown that out anyway right but yeah, I bet that gum was flavorless. <laughs> oh, I keep thinking like fruit stripe. Is that with the zebra? Yeah. Where you like plaster your tongue to the tattoo and try and get it not blurry on your arm, but it was blurry every time. If it even transferred. Mine would never transfer. I couldn't do it right. Oh, I'm slobbery. Mine transferred just fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, no, like you would chew it three or four times and it would lose flavor. But in those three or four chews, it was the best flavor. And it would, that's why it made it so disappointing. It because was succulent. It was, it you was just so go through good. that whole pack in an hour. <laughs> just chew, chew, chew. Poof. It was the best flavor followed by no flavor whatsoever. And that was, I think, what made it so psychologically... Addictive? Well, no, just like disappointing and just how it sticks with you. Oh, yeah. Probably. Everyone can remember what that tastes like and that experience of being like, oh, Can you still buy it? You can. I'm not sure what its formula is if it's if it goes bland it. instantaneously again. Right? But, but I hope so. Best flavor followed by nothing. And then it's just, that's kinda it. Like, that's Kind of like life. childhood. Once it's done, you're an adult followed by nothing, an empty abyss of paying taxes and scraping by for vacations. For what? <laughs> To work for 40 years until your back's broken and you're like, joints creak when you get up and now you have to like squint when you look at the computer screen. This is what adulting has done. It was basically training children to be adults. Exactly <laughs> Every time they chew a piece, they're like, you know what, kid? Here's adulthood. Go fuck yourself. Wow. I've never related to something so much before and so sadly. So back to Superman. Back to Superman. <laughs> Originally, Siegel and Schuster imagined Superman actually as a villain. Siegel self-published a story in 1933 called The Reign of Superman. It 
featured a mad scientist who grabs a rando, is what I put it as. It says some <laughs> other word in there. I said, nah, that's not how we do these. So grabbed some rando from the breadline, which there you go, the breadline, because oh. the 30s, the Great Depression. I was like, well, wow. that's sad. So grabs a rando from the breadline, gives him telepathic abilities. This causes him to go mad with power, kills the scientist, begins taking over the world. When oh. Schuster illustrated the piece, he reimagined this character with an alien backstory, a secret identity, and the cape. So as a boy, Schuster was interested in fitness culture and was a huge fan of strongmen collecting magazines and photographs, which he did illustrations off of. Oh. Actually, you know what? In my time in the industry, I feel like I, that was a fact I learned at one point was ah. that, yeah, the bodybuilders totally don't say it because i'm about to oh okay so <laughs> i was like i think i know where you're going my eyes of like panic i was like sitting tall i was like stop talking <laughs> i mean you can always talk but like let me say it first and then you can sure, repeat sure. It after me if you know it i believe you this inspired the visual design of superman and other comic book characters right no i told you this you didn't find this out <laughs> from your time in the industry don't even <laughs> Pretend, pretend away like that. Um, <laughs> from the tight-fitting suits to that underwear look, because that was what strong men looked like back in the day. That was their outfit that they wore. Uh -huh. That's why Superman and Batman and all those other guys, I mean, even the old Marvel characters mm -hmm. look like it. That's why they look like they were wearing underwear outside and everyone laughed at it. It was an old strongman suit. That's what they were designed after. And people didn't get rid of it because, you know, OG. Uh, they're designed after wrestlers, boxers, or strongmen. Originally, Superman actually even had laced boots up front, like a strongman would, before they were changed over to those red boots that we are more familiar with oh. today. Do you think that when he had to do his quick changes... Could you even imagine? lace up boots. How yeah. in the fuck? He was sitting there, you could just, in the phone booth. Like, Never. You would have died by that time. Anywho... Don't take a long time for your costume changes is my point here. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be lacing up your boots when you need to go save Metropolis or whatever it's yeah. is currently. Is it Metropolis at it this point? It certainly is. All right. You're doing great. All things considered. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I'm amazing sometimes. So after the 1940s, competition from the comic uh, Fawcett, they're called Fawcett, that was the comic company, mm -hmm. from the hero... Captain Marvel was outselling Superman. Listen, I'm going to stop you right here. The Captain Marvel, come at me, Marvel, I dare you. The real Captain Marvel, for those of you who are probably, we have very well-versed listeners here, so they know who I'm talking about. But in case they don't, the character is now known as Shazam. Right. Right. Okay. The yeah. original Captain Marvel, before Marvel had to go out of their way and buy him and all that, but get out of town. Anyway. Actually, is one of my... I really love this character. If you want to see a really good iteration of Shazam slash Captain Marvel, uh, actually, before Meyer, Marvel acquired the rights to it, is in the season one, season two of Young Justice. I know it's available on HBO for streaming, but you can probably find it other places. Totally awesome, and you see a good iteration of him that explains to you who the character is. Mm -hmm. But for those of us who don't have that kind of time, He's essentially like Superman. He's got the suit. He's a young boy who yells, Shazam! And it's really great. I love that he yells Shazam because, wow, that's just the pizzazz we all need in life. And, like, lightning strikes down. 
And whoo Then he's like this big muscly man. You know, Wisdom of Solomon, Speed of Mercury. And, oh yeah, <laughs> you'd have to watch the show to get it. But anyway, another Superman-ish type. He can fly, he's got super strength, he's got a lot of that. So it's super similar to Superman. So, as they do, DC filed a successful lawsuit (laughs) (laughs) against Fawcett. And shortly after that, they won, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Shortly after that, Kryptonite was introduced to the comic series. Well, no, excuse me, to the radio show and added an Achilles heel to our hero. It followed shortly after to the comic series, but it started in the radio show. With the advent of World War II, Superman was DC Comics' bearer of patriotism. Their Captain America is... He would say it. He was, of course, depicted fighting Axis powers. Again, like Captain America and the Nazis. Although I think that's where Captain America was born, right? Was probably in the 40s. Yeah. It's, that's his whole thing is he wanted to go into World War II, right? I would assume so. So Superman and Batman, actually, because they're only a couple months apart. Older, obviously they were, you know, Superman's like the big American hero. Quotey quotes, quote, quote, quotes, <laughs> quoting around here, quote, quote. <laughs> However, the problem came after World War II, when readers actually flocked to horror, true crime, and romance titles within the comics, as opposed to the superhero titles, kind of falling out of popularity. It was at this particular time that Superman's success switched to other media. So in 1948 and 1950, actor Kirk Allen played Superman on the silver screen for the first time. It was not the... uh, That surprised me when I was researching this. I didn't know there were other live-action Superman movies out there. There are. Okay. Yeah. 1948, 1950. They inspired off of that a TV spin-off called The Adventures of Superman from 1952 to 1958. Mm -hmm. You knew this? That one I knew about. Oh. This was all news to me. So here we come to the end. Of what's called the golden age of comics. End of the 50s, right? The industry started self-censorship. It was not as violent as it was before. Uh, Superman became more of a helpful scoutmaster. And instilling virtues in children and all that. And, you know, less violent. Because if anyone's ever seen the early versions of Batman. Um, he's like kicking dudes off of cliff sides and shooting them. <laughs> and uh, I mean... He's a hell yeah Batman, I'm going to be honest with you. But, yeah. A hell yeah Batman. Yes. <laughs> yippee ki Batman, yippee ki <laughs> Still haven't seen that movie. Oh, yeah. Supposedly, I'm going to have a movie night with a certain someone who's going to watch it with me, but what is it called again? Die Hard? Yep, there it is. I'm working on it. I'll get there. I'll let you know when I finally make this happen. So the more family-friendly version of Superman was penned by author Otto Binder. Uh, And he actually moved over from Fawcett, the rival comic book company, in 1948. So Binder is responsible for fleshing out a lot of, like, the Superman story that you and I would recognize. Not that we wouldn't recognize the other one, but he had um, Al Plastino, which was a cousin of Superman, Supergirl, Brainiac, Candor. He co-created Crypto, the dog, Comet the Super Horse, which I didn't even know existed. <laughs> yep, apparently there's a super horse. <laughs> as well as assisting with Bizarro and the Phantom Zone, which has something to do with this crazy prison thing that, I'm going to be honest with you, not a big Superman reader. I know, don't be upset with me. 
I was more of a Batman kid, but I did read, what's the new, there was a 12-run series, uh, like action comics, and there was a 12 issues of Superman. Good stuff. Highly recommend. Superman's fame at this point had reached global status until the 1960s when DC turned its attention to the other flagship character. And here I have, in parentheses, pause for dramatic effect. Mm. Who is it, Laurel? Is it Batman? Indeed. So they turned their efforts towards Batman because that's around the time that the Adam West Batman came out. Yeah. So in 1967, Superman's newspaper strip was canceled. Oh. I know. In January of 1971, however, artist Carmine Infantino, Infantino? it's Carmine, I believe, C-A-R-M-I-N-E. Yeah, Yeah, Carmine. Carmine. It sounds like such a, like, comic book bad guy name. (laughs) It is. Carmine Falcone, right? Yeah, What is that from again? Um, That's from Batman. Whoa! (laughs) Did you see my face, like, looking at you? I I couldn't get the words out fast. I was like, that is Batman. I know, and I was sitting there looking at you. I was like, I'm blanking, but shout words at me. (laughs) So this artist was tasked with overhauling the Man of Steel, because previously, in the early 60s, because this is 71 now, in the early 60s, he reinvented Batman. Batman was close to being canceled. Listen, we'll get to Batman. He'll have his day. I promise you, I would never forget my Dark Knight. But today we are talking of the Man of Steel. It's not very romantic, my Dark Knight. It is romantic. I love Batman. (laughs) (laughs) He is everything. What did you think of Robert Pattinson as Batman, Bruce Wayne? fucking hell. So good, right? Yeah. Whoa. I want to watch it again. Blake said, I don't want to watch stuff again. I'm like, well, I like to watch things three times when I like them, so fuck off. Yeah, I was highly impressed. So impressed. Except the one part I'm going to have issue with, Mm -hmm. when he got... Point blank blasted with a shotgun. I was like, dude, his throat would be blasted. I open. said the exact same thing to Christian. I was you. like, movie over. I know. His, I was like, Batman's throat, face his jaw would be, be gone. And Blake goes, you know what? If that is true, what kind of fucking body armor does he have? And why is he not sending it to the soldiers? I was like, yeah. Yeah, really, Batman, you selfish fuck? piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce. Hey, what does Batman do? I was crime fighting at night. I don't know, but you can't get the joke out without laughing already. <laughs> because if he did it during the day, he'd have weird and obvious tan lines. <laughs> You're right. <sighs> <sighs> Joyous. Sorry. <laughs> so halfway through the 1970s, DC Comics joined forces. Are you ready? With its biggest competitor. Nay, its rival, Marvel Comics. For a collaboration between Superman, the Man of Steel, versus... Do you know who it is? Hulk? No. Very classic Marvel superhero. My favorite. That gives it away right there. Oh. Thor? Uh, Spider-Man. Oh, Spider-Man. My favorite in the comics. I should have given you a clearer clearer shot at that. My first comic ever, incidentally, was Spider-Man. So Spider-Man is extremely dear to my heart. So in 1977, I guess not much happens between the 70s and 77. <laughs> they, they collaborate with Mar- Marvel and that was it. Uh, so in 1977, the Superman newspaper strip was revived for what oh. purpose? The motion picture. <laughs> the movie was a blockbuster hit. Yes. Earning more than $300 million. The success only rivaled that of The Omen the previous year in 1976. Wow. Okay. Fucking hell. 
Three more films followed, cementing the Man of Steel as a pop culture icon. I love those movies, actually, to be completely honest with you. Christopher Reeve. Yeah. There was a whole thing. I actually didn't put it in here, but I could touch on it. Have you heard of the, like, Curse of Superman thing? Every person who plays him, something horrible accident befalls them. Henry Cavill, don't you dare. Oh, no. Yeah. Everyone like, watch out for Henry. I know. Um, seriously, wrap him in bubble wrap, oh. but not too tightly because he'll suffocate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, n- no, I've not yeah, heard that. Christopher that Reeve, st- unfortunately, in his horse riding accident. Yes. Christopher yeah. Reeve, yeah, because mm-hmm. he was in a wheelchair after that. Mm-hmm. And then one of the babies who portrayed him in the TV show? something like that uh died actually really sadly like at like 15 16 from a huffing incident oh yeah it was really sad and then there was another one that they said where someone passed away as well it's like oh my god it's so sad i know so everybody watch out for henry cavill don't let anything happen to him wrap him in bubble wrap give him a breathing tube that's really i think what made superman as big as he is today was that in the 70s in my opinion because that's where my knowledge of superman started was watching those movies and stuff like that and then also my saturday morning cartoons uh with i'm getting a little ahead of the timeline but with justice league unlimited Mm -hmm. i think is what it was called and i saw superman i saw superman a lot of justice league stuff because after that you know in the 90s, it was Batman the Animated Series, and then it was Batman Beyond, and then there was another iteration of a Batman series, which is gold, by the way. All can be found on HBO. HBO show. Yeah, they've got all the DC stuff over oh, there. Yeah. yeah. So, here we go. Are you Dang. ready? Plunging into it. The right. comic industry experienced explosive growth in the 1990s until one of the darkest days in comic book history. Ooh. You know what it is. Okay. You've heard it talked about. Do you have any guesses or no? In the 90s? Yeah. 93, January of 93 to be specific. No. So Superman number 75, January of 93, depicted the death of Superman at the hands of Doomsday. It's considered the darkest day in comic book history because that really changed comic book writing forever. Because you could kill off a character, bring him back, kill off a character, oh, bring him back. right, right, yeah. That was the first time that, like, Superman died. Okay. So how we see it, to, spoiler alert, everybody, the uh, Batman, Superman, Dawn of Justice, mo- Dawn of Justice, right? Uh, yeah, yep. whatever that, yes. Yep, I have it written down. <laughs> I'd refer to my notes. You see Superman die. Mm-hmm. Again, at the hands of Doomsday. Since 2000, DC has repeatedly revisited and retold alternative versions of Superman's origin and early career story. And Superman has been flying across the silver screen recently. So this is the modern day era of, of Superman. In Superman Returns, Man of Steel, Moral. Mm-hmm. Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. And in 2017... In the Justice League. And that's about the last time we've seen him on the screen. For now. Hopefully we'll see more of him. Because like I said, I really like Cavill's depiction of him. A really good run. uh, A modern day run, let's say. If anyone's interested in Superman. There's New 52, which is a really good one. Especially the Batman one. And uh, the Action Comics and Superman resetting to issue number one. Uh, Morrison, I believe, is the writer. And it's an 18-issue run from 2011 to 2013. 
set the stage for a new generation of tales, blah, blah, blah. But it's a good one. There's also All-Star Superman, although I wasn't as big a fan of that one. But um, also there's a really good one with Superman's kid. With It's with Damien, Batman's mm-hmm. offspring. And then the other one, Super, you know, the Superboy. You'll find it. If you Google it, you'll find okay. it. Um, but all great, great, great stories. So Superman's t- tales... Still told today, obviously. You know, not just a comic book hit, but silver screen hit. So all these things, I mean, look at the Marvel Universe. We're in our second generation of a filmmaking masterpiece, I would mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. of all this storytelling. You know, all of that, all of this, all of everything, from the pop culture references to it, to the comics, to these little newspaper strips and and the shirts and the movies and all that mm-hmm. that we all love so much it all started with superman june june 1st of 1938 happy 84th birthday superman 84 wow Just did the math there well siri did the math <laughs> siri did let's the, not don't, get don't ourselves lie. i saw how lazy you were <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i didn't even type it in i just asked her <laughs> All right, Katie and Smoke Circle, gather in, gather in, folks. Get your pillows. Get your pillows. Get comfy. We've got a tail. So it is Pride Month. June starts Pride Month here on the calendar, here in the Smoke Circle. But then also, we like to say, it Pride Month is every month, too, you know? <laughs> Not yeah. just celebrating in these months that they come up. But I think that these are good times to highlight stories of people in whatever community that we're celebrating each month. So I think part of that conversation also is the thought of like, where did this come from? And how long has it been going on? Who started it? And all that. So for those answers, we're going to talk about two queer trans women of color whose constant fight to just be seen and acknowledged as a human being led to New York's Stonewall Uprising of 1969 and the beginning of gay liberation. Woot, woot, woot. I wish I could do those like little finger snap things that people do, like, check it. And they're like, they can click their fingers together, you know? Oh. That's what I would do. Bah, bah. I was too busy laughing that it all happened in 69. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so we have the Stonewall Uprising of 1969, and then we have two women, and their names are Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. So here's their story. Just as a content warning ahead of time, especially if you do know. I had a thought that you were doing the Stonewall. Yeah. I really <laughs> did. I was like, because I thought about it and I was like, nah, no way. Laura was definitely doing it. And yeah. if you didn't, I'd have been shocked. Well, this is, again, this, like I said, this is like one of those stories that always comes up about this time of year. So this might be something you've heard of, but I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up and do my story on it, you know, talk about it in our smoke circle, just in case someone's like, I don't know anything about this and I would love to hear it. Or I would like to hear Laurel's vocal fry do it. I already know the story, but I would love to hear Laurel (laughs) stone off her ass with her vocal fry. Tell me the story because it's it's better. (laughs) It can't be any worse than listening to me try and keep a train of thought. (laughs) (laughs) So if you do know the story, awesome. But you also will know that there is um, the story contains discrimination and violence against people of color and the LGBTQIA plus community, survival sex work, brief mentions of suicide. So use discretion. I'm not going to go like super into everything, but I or like, you know, the, the tough stuff. I won't go into that. 
set the scene. Here we go. Smoke. We are back in New York in the 70s, which isn't nice, but. (laughs) I was like. Well, I shouldn't say 70s, late 60s. We're back in New York in the late 60s. It smells funny. Which is not nice. Yeah. Summertime, right? If you've ever been in New York in the summertime. I have, and it smells funny. Yeah. It's the garbage. (laughs) All the garbage is out. But part of me, like, I love New York in the summertime. Oh, I mean, good for you. Chicago (laughs) smells like a weird poopy water. Yeah, Chicago smells gross, too. Yeah, it does. I still love you both. It's my my gross, so I'm okay with it. I love you both. So, here we go. It's the late 60s in the heart of Manhattan's West Village. On Christopher Street, it's the main hub for gay and queer culture. The Stonewall Inn is a safe haven for those who don't quite fit in. They're the drag queens, gender non-conforming, trans men and women who were often barred at the doors of other gay and lesbian, lesbian bars. Oh, within their own community. Yeah, within their own community. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, culture is more like gay and lesbian, especially white gay and lesbian. But then if you were trans, um, just general queer or gender nonconforming, you were even outside of that. Okay. But the Stonewall was set apart in another way. It was the only safe space for gay and queer youth. The ones who were underage and they couldn't get into bars. The ones who often were without homes, without a place to sleep at night, thrown out of their homes by intolerant parents or thrown out of the service or a college or other intolerant establishment that's like, no, you're not welcome here. With nowhere else to go and inhospitable streets as the only other option, they frequently panhandled for the $3 admission to get into the Stonewall. For $3, which was a very low admission price in comparison to other bars and clubs, they could stay all night. So it was open all night until dawn. They could stay all night in the safety of others like them out of the winter chill or summer heat. So Katie, I don't know if you know this, but homosexuality was considered a mental illness until 1973. I did. Yeah. And with the exception of Illinois, which I'm like, at least, hey, <laughs> okay, Illinois, Wait, at what? least you got I'm that sorry. going. Did you just say something positive about our state? I know. That's what I was like. <laughs> oh, there's that. You and I, like, literally <laughs> both of our sets of eyebrows went way up. We were like, what? <laughs> And with the exception of Illinois, any homosexual acts, including, quote unquote, here's air quotes here, masquerading as the opposite sex were illegal. It wasn't unheard of for anyone who might fit that description to be harassed or even assaulted by people with or without a police badge. As much as Stonewall was considered a safe haven for marginalized queer folks of Christopher Street, even that wasn't without its security breaches from the NYPD or the mafia. Mm hmm. Of course, the mafia has to get involved. At the time, <laughs> gay bars and clubs in New York were typically owned by the, the mafia. No and the Stonewall shit. was one of them. Yeah. So now we've got a little mafia, you know, mob tie in here. Yeah, see? Yeah, sorry. Because even having gay patrons in your bar could get you in trouble because of laws at the time, the mafia would bribe corruptible cops to leave their place alone or at least look the other way when they were in there. And the mafia would in turn blackmail wealthy gay patrons to either pay up or be publicly outed to be gay. Police raids on gay establishments were commonplace. They would, it would happen all the time. And the handful of bars who didn't have up-to-date liquor license or just didn't have one at all were the main targets. Mm-hmm. And that's the Stonewall. Oh. So the Stonewall Inn would sometimes have a license, sometimes didn't have one at all. Yeah. And so places like that who that were also known gay bars and clubs were like just 
in the crosshairs all the time. Mm-hmm. On the night of June 24th in 1969, the police raided the Stonewall Inn, arresting some of its employees and seizing their stash of illegal alcohol. After this raid was completed, the NYPD planned a second one a few days out in order to further wound the Stonewall and shut it down permanently. So just a couple days fresh from a raid instead of giving them time to rebuild their stores and get patrons back in there again. So they're actively trying to put it out. They're of actively trying to put it down. Yep. The second raid happened four days later on the 28th of June. It was just after midnight on a particularly hot night, right? So you're feeling it. You're feeling the sticky skin and it's nighttime. You know when it's like hot at night in the summertime. Everything smells like hot garbage. Yep. Smells like hot garbage. <laughs> asphalt. Um, I thought you were going to say assholes. Yeah, it just smells like <laughs> yeah. assholes everywhere. <laughs> and asphalt. And there's whatever music is happening in 1969. I was about to say disco. I don't know why I keep thinking that we were in 10 years later at the late 70s. I but mean, no. 1969. You're a little early. Yep. Eight plainclothes police officers enter the Stonewall Inn. The bar's employees, as well as trans patrons, were targeted, harassed, and arrested. But this time it felt different. You know, maybe it's the two raids in four days. Everyone's like all riled up from that. The hot weather. Or perhaps people are like, you know what? I'm fucking sick of this shit. Get your hands off me kind of thing. But the regulars of the Stonewall Inn saw the potential end of their beloved bar, which was their home. For some, it was kind of like their home for the night, literally. Some people don't really have another place to go. Exactly. The Stonewall was their one generally safe haven where they weren't out on the streets at night. And this time, the drags and the queens decided to fight back. Okay, are you ready? Two regulars at this home away from home were Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Marsha P., as in pay it no mind, is what she would tell people. Johnson, I love that, by the way. Yeah, that just, well, huge. What's the P stand for? She'd be like, pay it no mind. I'm like, all right. (laughs) So she was a fixture in Greenwich Village and in the West Village. Assigned male at birth, she was frequently reprimanded as a child for her wearing of girls' women's clothes. So after graduating high school, she left home with a bag of clothes and $15 and moved to New York City. Like many queer youths in the city, she found it hard to find a place to live and then get a job, and so therefore had to turn to sex work to make ends meet. After a time, though, she found her home and family amongst the drag queens of Christopher Street. She had a big, eccentric personality, and she accessorized her look with whimsical flower hats and bold costume jewelry. Have you seen a picture of her before? I think I have. I would think you have. She's a very, um, her picture, especially like there's a certain picture of her that is the iconic picture of Pride Month and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That picture, there's another one where she's facing the other direction and it's a little bit closer up. Big flower headpieces and wreaths around her head and hats, big chunky jewelry, lipstick. She has got it all put together. Accessorized to the max? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. She's a maximist, whatever they call it. (laughs) Maximalist. (laughs) A maximalist. There ain't nothing basic over here. No. Uh, yes, I have definitely seen, I've definitely seen her. There she is. A creative and handy with a needle and thread, Marsha made her own costumes and items that she found from the thrift store. At one point in her life, she even toured with drag theater troupe Hot Peaches, which sounds like exactly the kind of show I want to go see. Hot Peaches. And I'm not being sarcastic. I'm serious. That sounds like a lot of... I was going to say, I was (laughs) like, I would go... So often credited with having thrown the first brick at the Stonewall riots. 23-year-old Marshall later said in an interview that she came to the Stonewall after the rioting had started that night. 
So you'll see a lot of stories where they're like, Marsha P. Johnson threw the first brick. Marsha P. Johnson threw the first brick. And after the whole incident went down, she was always like, no, 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 I never throw that. I never threw the first brick at the Stonewall riot. But um, anyway, regardless, she's always been seen as a leader of the night's events and the movement that was to follow. The scene around the Stonewall Inn on June 28th was beginning to attract a crowd. Gay and trans men and women were getting arrested and being loaded into a police van. The story of the Stonewall Uprising has its own mythos surrounding it, and some details will get debated. So you'll see some stories that have a couple of different things in it, perhaps. But whatever was the actual catalyst, it said that one woman complained of her handcuffs being too tight and then forcibly being pushed into the van. She called back to the crowd, why won't you do something? And then people were like, oh, okay. We will. Ask and and you they shall did. Receive. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that say like what actually made the uprising start. And oftentimes what gets credited is, is a woman getting handcuffed and like thrown in the back of the van. She's like, why won't you do something? Yeah. And they do. Why are you all just standing here? Yeah. Why are you just stand there? There's more of you than yeah. there is of them. Well, that's Fucking what was riot. realized actually. So then everyone starts shouting pigs, copper. And then they fling pennies at the officers because copper, copper pennies, coppers. Oh, I think it's crazy. At least whip quarters, it'll hurt more. <laughs> but you could buy a lot with a quarter in 1969. Oh, that's to be true. Never mind. <laughs> Go back to throwing pennies. So, the police van and accompanying squad cars left to take those arrested to the nearest precinct. So they drive off, taking those that they had already arrested. But the mob outside the bar keeps growing. The next items being thrown were bottles and rocks. The remaining police officers fled inside the stone wall and barricaded themselves inside. Oh. So now they're inside the bar. (laughs) Some rioters slashed the tires of the squad cars out front. Others ripped a parking meter out of the ground and then used it as an impromptu battering ram on the stone wall. Yeah. As the unrest grew, the crowd outside began to make Molotov cocktails with the beer bottles and some lighter fluid. The first firebomb was thrown, but contrary to rumor, it was not thrown by 17-year-old Sylvia Rivera. Like Marcia, Sylvia always maintained that she did not throw the first brick or stone or Molotov cocktail, but she threw the second one. (laughs) (laughs) Sylvia Rivera, also assigned male at birth, had a very troubled start to her life, like a few of the other queens of Christopher Street. She was of Puerto Rican and Venezuelan descent living in the Bronx when her father abandoned her and her mother shortly after she was born. She was then orphaned as a toddler when her mother committed suicide. She was then raised by her grandmother, who frequently abused her for her effeminate effeminate behavior. At 11, she ran away from home and also ended up turning to sex work for survival. But thankfully, we're going to turn things around here, folks. Thankfully, she met a group of drag queens who took her in and gave her a sense of family. And it was with their support that she became Sylvia and identified herself as a drag queen. She was a perfect example of a homeless trans youth of New York who were too young to get into other bars, but wouldn't have been safe on the streets at night. So here we go. Back to June 28th. The rioting on June 28th lasted through most of the night until police, riot police showed up and dispersed the crowd around 4 a.m. Thankfully, no one was killed or seriously injured, although both sides reported some minor injuries. One might think that with the interior destroyed and with police on high alert following the previous night's events, that the Stonewall would have shut their doors. Absolutely either, not. Now is the time to no. strike, y'all. You think either permanently or at least until things settled down, no. they would have closed up. But now no, is the time you're right. To strike, girl. <laughs> no. Although they were not serving alcohol, they opened the next day and the crowds came back. 
Supporters gathered inside and around a front door singing, we shall overcome and chanting gay power. And even, I love this, and even blocking protesters from the police with a rocket style kick line. <laughs> so they blocked the, they blocked protesters by like doing a little kick line. So the police were like, oh, oh, no, we can't get, oh, no, oh, there's a leg. Oh, no, we can't get through. So deactivated Loved by the it. power of dance. Yes. Once again, the riot police showed up, beating back the crowds and then dispersing them with tear gas. Oh. Yeah. From June 29th to July 1st, word of the raid on the Stonewall and the ensuing protests spread throughout the city. Every night that week, more and more LGBTQIA plus activists showed up to support. And the NYPD showed up too, but thankfully, interactions between the two sides were less confrontational this time around. Yeah, because they probably got the message. Yeah. News of the Stonewall raid was printed in the press accompanied with homophobic and transphobic slurs. Activists then showed up in the news outlets protesting the articles and even threatening to burn down the buildings. Well? Yeah. The community banded together in a way that hadn't existed up until that point. So, yes, the gay rights movement didn't start on June 28, 1969, but the Stonewall uprising set in motion something different. It's kind of a rallying cry, really. Yes. As with many watershed movements in history, there's this moment that sparks outrage and is if it were a spark, like a wildfire in a dry field. It ignites and spreads rapidly. Such was the case in New York City. Even within the LGBTQIA plus community of the 60s and early 70s, there wasn't room for the T and the Q and the I and the A and the plus let alone those who were homeless or incarcerated or even... I know there were that many letters. Queer. You're teaching me something right now. I'm looking at you. I'm like, are you just adding letters for fun? No, no. But with Stonewall, everyone was fighting together, and it allowed people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera to get their foot in the door in the fight for equality. So now there's like recognition beyond just the LGB. In 1970, the two women joined together to create STAR, which stood for Street... Now, now we say street trans action revolutionaries, but they, but she said transvestite. That was how she, yeah. she and she always called herself. I should point this out now. She yeah. would always call mm-hmm. the trans women, men or women. She would always just call them transvestite. Well, except that was, was the word at the time, the right? Yeah, yeah. That would be the term that they grew up. So with. she would always, so she would always use the the term uh, transvestite. Mm-hmm. We're going to say trans continuing forward. So the name is actually changed for Star when it. So if you go to look it up, that's what you'll see. And on top of that, she would always say, because again, like you, like you mentioned, you're like, those are some new letters I didn't realize Mm -hmm. exist as part of it. She would also just say, we're gay. And that was how she used the umbrella term is like what we would say queer today. So if you go back and like look at interviews, um, interviews with her because there are actually quite a, there are a few of them and and that's something that she actually brings up. Well, terminology evolves over time. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Like you said, umbrella term. Mm-hmm. The mission of STAR was primarily to keep trans youth off the street. They organized with homeless and poor trans people in order to build a community together and give shelter and food to those who needed it. According to Rivera, STAR was for the street gay people, the street homeless people, and anybody that needed help at that time, end quote. Marcia adopted the role of queen mother and referred to the youth in STAR as children. Their first shelter was a trailer truck, but soon they rented a building at 213 2nd Avenue in the East Village. They did sex work in the evenings to pay the rent so the kids' shelter didn't have to. Star was the first LGBT youth shelter in North America, 
and was also the first trans woman of color-led organization in the United States. Star even expanded to Chicago and California before dissolving after a few years. Oh, it dissolved? Yeah. Another organization Sylvia helped co-found was the Gay Liberation Front, which, unlike organizations, was inclusive of trans and non-binary and non-gender conforming individuals. The GLF, as it was known, sought political action against oppressive laws and inequality for queer individuals. A 70s newspaper titled Come Out stated, quote, Gay Liberation Front welcomes any gay person regardless of sex, race, age, or social behavior. Though some other gay organizations may be embarrassed by drags or trans people, GLF believes that we should accept all of our brothers and sisters unconditionally, end quote. And then Marsha joined this organization as well. So in this home of Star, if Marsha was the matriarch of the Star children, then Sylvia was the fire in the hearth <laughs> yeah, and the gas. Sylvia was no stranger to activism and protest even before the Stonewall Uprising. She had previously marched for women's rights and civil rights and protested the Vietnam War before she threw that Molotov cocktail on mm-hmm. June 28th. Sylvia was fed up that trans and genderqueer individuals were constantly on the fringes of the gay community and rarely accepted. Over the years, she fought harder and louder than anyone else to ensure that those individuals were seen and included in the picture of gay and equal rights. And beyond that, she particularly focused on helping queer people of color, the homeless, and those incarcerated. So Sylvia has really like been dug into it for for some time. So a lot of stories, it feels like Marsha's, yeah, she's like the at-home person to help take care of everybody and, you know, look after all the, the use and star. And then Sylvia's out there doing some shit and digging in and doing mm-hmm. the activism. I mean, they both would do that, of course, but Sylvia was the fire. Her ferocity for equality for all queer folks, not just white cisgender ones, would often get her kicked out of the gay and lesbian centers and activation and activism organizations like Gay Activists Alliance and even her own Gay Liberation Front. So <laughs> such an example would be the passing of New York's gay rights bill passed 17 years after the Stonewall riots in 1986. Sylvia and other trans activists initially supported it because it would bar discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and originally included support for the transgender community. But when it passed, however, anything denouncing gender discrimination was removed. So when Sylvia spoke about it later in 2001, she said, they have a little backroom deal without inviting Miss Sylvia and some of the other trans activists. The deal was, you take them out, we'll pass the bill. Mm-hmm. So she was, she, she was saying that like the rest of the gay community didn't support her and what she was trying to do. And so they were it's saying so like, odd. Yeah. It's just so odd that like, I don't know. It's so weird to be like you said, we're on the outer fringes, but you're on the outer, outer fringes. Like, mm-hmm. it's so odd. Like, I'm like. I'm surprised you knowing how it feels would even, Yeah, you know, yeah. it's surprising to me that they would have gone, I guess, to the trouble of ostracizing. So it's just, it's an odd concept for my brain to sit here. That's probably why you were like, your face looks concerned. Confused would probably more be the <laughs> word because I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh, that makes next to no sense to me. But yeah. I mean, I think sometimes when people, what I've noticed with people anyway, they're very fearful of the unknown and things they don't understand, and they tend to just react. Mm-hmm. I mean, in different ways. Me, like, I just, again, I kind of, like, stare at you. Like, interesting. Explain that to me, because I'm not sure. But, again, I'm also very 
I don't know about outspoken, but I'm very plainly spoken in that, like, if I look at you, I'm like, I'm not following you. You're going to have to break it down for me. Now, for Marcia, she always battled with mental illness, but as she always liked to put it, she would say, I may be crazy, but that don't make me wrong. Hmm. Amen. <laughs> she didn't live an easy life, but friends say that she lived it with a certain fire, <laughs> a oh, certain yeah. joie de vivre or whatever, <laughs> like joy of life, whatever mm-hmm. they call it. Okay. So... Andy Warhol, a successful gay Greenwich Village artist, painted a portrait of her for his Ladies and Gentlemen collection, which were portraits of transgender party icons and drag queens. Though her name isn't included with the portrait. Hmm. As AIDS took many of her friends over the years, Marcia also became an AIDS activist and even a caretaker for some of her friends. Marcia revealed in a 1992 interview that she herself is HIV positive and commented that she was one of the few queens left of the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Sadly, on June 6, 1992, which is 30 years ago yesterday from when we're recording this, the body of Marsha P. Johnson was found in the Hudson River off the West Village Piers. She was 46. At the time, her death was ruled a suicide, but for years, those closest to her insisted that, although she was mentally ill, she was not suicidal and that foul play must have been involved. Some people say that Marcia was being harassed by a group of men only a few days prior. And later in 1992, the NYPD changed Marcia's cause of death to drowning from undetermined causes and reopened the case again in 2012, which remains officially open to this day. Disillusioned, Sylvia took a 20-year hiatus from activism. She felt betrayed by those she worked with in the movement for equality. Her frustrations were heard during a pride rally in 1973, with her famous Y'all Better Quiet Down speech, in which, during a chorus of boos, she takes the stage and admonishes organizations for their lack of inclusion. So I'm going to put that in the show notes. Um, Yeah. She returned in the mid-90s during a time of controversy around gay rights and continued fighting for those in the margins of the marginalized. She even rebooted Star in June of 2000 to hold a rally and vigil during the death of Amanda Milan, a trans woman murdered outside New York's Port Authority bus terminal. On February 19, 2002, Sylvia Rivera passed away from liver cancer. Currently, she is the only transgender person to have their portrait in the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery. Oh, wow. At, at the point that I wrote this. Her legacy also lives on in the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, founded in 2002 and led by trans activist Dean Spade. The organization provides access to social services, health services, public education, and legal services for transgender, intersex, and gender nonconforming individuals, while also teaching them how to engage politically, building leadership, and organizing committees, and empowering them to take action. Boom. So that's the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. On June 28th, 1970, the Christopher Street Liberation March was the kickoff to the city's first gay pride week. Woo, 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 pride. Several hundred people set off from in front of the Stonewall Inn and began marching up 6th Avenue towards Central Park. As they did, supporters from the crowd joined in. And soon, so it was just like a group of people, and soon it became a 15-city block with thousands of participants march. And it was such a huge march that other major U.S. cities followed suit in Chicago, Los Angeles, Boston, and San Francisco. Where the fuck are you, Chicago? We have a gay district, so where the fuck were you with all the rioting and the (laughs) priding and what? I was sitting. They're here now. They're here now. Listen, this city's been awful quiet. It's time to get it together. (laughs) Well, no, it's just because it took place in New York, you know. But now, you know, now it's rippling out. 
So we've got Chicago, Los Angeles, Boston, and San Francisco, and they all had their pride marches later that same year, 1970. 53 years later, cities around the world celebrate gay and queer pride in the month of June, and it all started from a police raid on a little bar that was the home to the most marginalized group of people in the gay community. It was the homeless, the incarcerated, the people of color, the genderqueer. And for Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, they were all those. They're all those labels. And though there has been progress since 1969, we all know there's still more work to do. Obviously, as I told you. Yeah. Their legacy lives on in the Sylvia Rivera Law Project and the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, as well as the proverbial torches that they've passed on to the next generation of trans activists. So thank you for joining me tonight. Everybody, Katie, for the stories of Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and the Stonewall Uprising of 1969. Happy Pride Month, everybody. Oh, what fun. Did you learn some things tonight, Katie? Yeah, now I have to go look up new letters that you were throwing out at me. I was sitting there. It's like when you stick your head out the window and the car and the bugs start flying at you. That's what was happening. I was like, oh, shit. I was like, I didn't anticipate this. I was like, I sat there. I felt like I didn't study for a test. I was like, crap. I, I intersex it. and A is asexual. I'll also Google it. Okay. It's a fabulous month to go educate myself on such matters. <laughs> it is a good month to educate yourself, exactly. And uh, we'll continue, put, or at least I will continue putting a spotlight on some of these stories this month. Well, thank you so much for stopping by and hanging out with us and, you know, learning about Superman say, and Superwomen. Hopefully you something. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to see you again in a couple weeks, unless we don't, because there might be a half-baked episode. But maybe not. But maybe it might wink, be two wink. weeks. Maybe She's it might winking be really hard, but also like, you're kind of one of those people who tilt your head when you wink. Yeah. Yeah. Like, wink. I don't. I just start twitching and people are like, do you have a tick? I'm like, no. It just looks like you're like blinking a lot on one side. Yeah. Well, no, because then both sides start doing I kind of like start like twitching and everyone's like, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> I just don't try to wink anymore. I just finger gun. I go. Gotcha. That's my version of a wink. So until next time when we get to see you again and be in your company again with your great hair, get money, get high, give love, and stay proud. Stay proud. Bye, everybody.